we prepare to come to the table here in a moment, I want to draw your attention to a passage that's familiar uh, to many of you, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where the Apostle Paul uh, gives us an explanation of this table. As we come this morning, my uh, expectation, my, my plan is to just focus our attention on what it is, the gift that God has given to us as we, as we come and eat and drink of his grace. And so this morning we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 26. Here are these words from our God. For I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes the word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come this morning, we come to praise you. Uh, we come to be renewed uh, at your invitation. and We come to taste, to experience, and be shaped by your grace. As we prepare ourselves to come to the table, may you open our minds that you may open our hearts. Lord, let us hear and consider this word, this instruction that you have given to us, that we may come to the table and truly taste and see that you are good. To you belongs all praise and glory. To you belong the lives that you have redeemed. And so we give ourselves to you in Christ. Amen. After a worship service a number of years ago, I was approached by a then 12-year-old girl who came with her grandmother. This young girl had lived a, a very difficult life up to that point and had only recently come to live with her father, who was a member of our church. And so after the service, they came and uh, and uh, her grandmother grinned, who grandmother was a friend then, a friend now, uh, grinned and said, she's got something she wants to give you. And so she, the young girl handed me a, a piece of paper, and on that paper were scribbled a list of 27 questions that she had begun writing out from the beginning of the service. Actually, there were 28 questions originally, apparently, but one of the questions had a line drawn through it with a note to the side that just said, never mind, Dennis just told me. So apparently at some point in the message, I had satisfied her curiosity on that particular question. But her questions were both wonderfully profound and also quite personal. And I promised her that I would not only read them, but I would do the best that I could to answer them. And when I went home and I read them, I was... I was both impressed and, and amused because here are a sample of some of her questions. 
If Jesus knew that he was going to die, why didn't he run and hide? That's a reasonable question. One that only a child would ask, but perhaps us as adults, we would benefit from under, thinking about as well. Why did God flood the whole earth if not everyone was being bad? Why does God make some people cute and other people ugly? Do you have to go to school in heaven? And why does God make some teachers meaner than others, and then in parenthesis, like Mrs. Quigley, who I do not know? <laughs> and so I wrestled with these questions in what I thought would probably be a couple of weeks at time. I just was so intrigued that I was able to answer them over the, the next day and, and responded uh, to each of her questions. But there was one question then and one question that, uh, that has continued to stick with me. Uh, through all of these years. Many of them come back to mind from time to time, but there, there's one that on a regular basis uh, continually comes, comes to mind. Uh, whether I give attention to it or not, the, the question uh, just continually re-arises. And that question is this. Why does everybody look so sad during communion? It's a tremendous question. I don't know that it's a universal reality, but it certainly is often the case that when you go to a church, whether it is an evangelical church or a mainline church or any church, that when we come to the point of coming to the table, people tend to, you know, their countenance begins to shift. And so how do you answer that question? How would you answer that question? Especially how would you answer that question if you were going to give an answer that was going to be satisfactory to a 12-year-old. A and I had to wrestle with it. As I was thinking about that question this week and even thinking about this time now as we prepare for the table, I, I realized this, that maybe a, an even more immediate question for us is, how do you feel when you come to this table? Do you feel sad that this young girl had seen that it looked to her like everybody looks like when they come and come to the table? Is it so familiar that you're not even really conscious of what you feel when you come to this table? I think it would be helpful for us to consider how we feel before we answer the question is why does everybody look so sad when they come uh, to the table. Now, the sad part, the, the sorrow part, certainly would be understandable when we come to this table, because as Paul explains in this instruction that he's given to us, is that every time we eat and drink the elements of this table, we, pro we proclaim Christ's death. And, and so death is a theme that runs through this table. Death is a theme that is visibly on display. Death is the theme of the elements that uh, are, are there, even prepared and standing and you waiting before you, you receive them. And, and then Paul, he touches on them and in the passage that we read, talks about the, the bread is my body, which is broken for you. And the cup contains the, the blood of the new covenant. It's the blood of Christ, which is shed, out, uh, shed for you. And so even the preparation and the description of the table that we are about to partake of 
reminds us in detail, in, in some vivid detail, of the gruesomeness of the death of Christ upon the cross. And then when we, who are somewhat aware of what Christianity declares, we think about the, the reason that Jesus died. He died in our place as a, a substitute, as an atonement for us. But it was as a substitute. It was our being bad in the words of the 12-year-old girl that got him in trouble. It was our behavior, and then he's called out, and he pays the penalty. He pays a gruesome, harsh, horrible penalty. And that only makes something that is awful feel all the worse. It's like the, the hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us Leads Us to Confess. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. The reason he died was because of what I did. And Jesus' death was the greatest expression of injustice in all of history. He who knew no sin, he who was perfect in every way, then was tried, but not in a legitimate way, convicted despite the fact that the judge declared, I find no fault in him, but you know what? This is what you people want, the ultimate of cancel culture. We don't want to hear him anymore, so let's kill him. And he died for us. All of which is good reason for us to feel sorrow and to look sad when we come to this table. It's a reminder of our worst. It's a reminder of our failure. It's a reminder of our continued struggle that even when we resolve that we will no longer fail in the ways that we failed in the past, we find that we continually do. And so it's not only about failure, it's about frustration. And when you have something that is going to remind you of the worst in you, well, of course that would be reason for sorrow. But at the same time, we also need to look at this table and be reminded that the intent that the Apostle Paul had when he wrote the words, when you eat and you drink the elements of this table... Every time you do it, you are declaring Christ's death until he comes. And the reason the Apostle Paul wrote it was not to enable us or cause us to wallow in our sin, but it was to free us from that and lead us into a joy that is beyond normal. A joy that, as he says, is inexpressible. It's a, it's a mystery. Because the death of Christ was not some accident. The death of Christ, while an injustice from a human standard, was the exact justice that God had planned from the very beginning. The death of Christ on the cross was the fulfillment of a promise that reminds us that God is faithful. It was the promise that God had made to the first parents, our first parents, immediately after they had fallen and were experiencing the sentence, here's what's going to happen now that you have disobeyed and you've broken fellowship with me, the living and true God. You who deserve death, you who were told that you eat, you will surely die. Now death is going to come, but here's what's going to happen eventually. One day, at just the right time, I'm going to send one who will be known as the, the seed of the woman. 
and he is going to crush the serpent's head. Now, the serpent's going to bruise him, but he will crush the serpent's head. This was accomplished in the coming, and then the death, and ultimately the resurrection of Christ. The promise that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. God was working this out from the very beginning. And the reason for that is that that would be the means by reconciliation. That God was continually the God of a people that he called, although they are faithful, unfaithful, just as we are at times. Their eye would wander, their mind would wander, their heart would wander, and be given uh, all over the place. And yet they know that, and we know, that we depend upon God and his grace. And so this constant dysfunctional relationship of, I love you, God, but you know what? I want other things. I need you, God, but you know what? I've had enough of you. And God, who is holy and perfect, and therefore rightly angry about such a nature of a relationship, and yet somehow mysteriously faithful and and loving beyond what any of us would likely do, particularly because he was not in need of us, He created us, he sustained us, he relates to us simply because he wants to, because he loves us. And so he provided a way to be reconciled and through this promise also comes forgiveness of our waywardness and of our sin. And we are restored in our relationship. And and while the reason, the, the elements of this table give us reason for sorrow, They also are a demonstration of reason for joy because these elements scream out, I love you. Apostle John picked up on that one, you know, in his very famous uh, verse that we're told in, in his gospel, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, whoever trusts in him, shall not perish but have eternal life. John elaborates on that in in multiple times in his first letter that he wrote. Well, we know John 3.16, 1 John 3.16 tells us this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And then he picks up again in, in 1 John 4. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And these elements in the table also points us forward. Because the passage doesn't say that we're proclaiming Christ's death, but we're proclaiming Christ's death until he comes. In other words, it's a reminder. We're proclaiming it. We're proclaiming it to the world that sees that we partake by eating, but we're proclaiming it to ourselves and to one another, that Christ died to say, I love you, to fulfill the promise, to bring reconciliation, to build that relationship, which gives us reason for joy. So I don't know how you feel when you come to this table. And I can't tell you how you should feel when you come to this table today or in any given week. It's quite possible that the Holy Spirit may be weighing upon you uh, the, the reality of your sin, the weightiness of it for a purpose. And that purpose would be that eventually you would feel the weight lifted from you because it has been put upon Christ. And so for me to tell you to come to this table only with joy would be 
a misrepresentation of all that God intends to do. If we come to this table without taking seriously the, the gravity of our sin and the weightiness of what Christ did for us on the cross, we come and we proclaim what would be a cheap grace, which is a salvation by God just saying, ah, just forget it as if our sin didn't matter. But our sin is heavy. And if God is holy, it must be paid for. But you can't do it, and I can't do it, and only God can do it, and so he did in his own son. And so we remember that, and that may bring sorrow to us, but the whole purpose of this table that Jesus instituted, it was not just as a memorial to have a funeral over and over and over again, but as a pointing of a time that would come where everything would be fulfilled, but also pointing back to the fact that the promises had been fulfilled and that we are reconciled to Christ. And so even though we have much reason to sorrow, ultimately, we have even greater reason to have joy. These two things are not necessarily mutually exclusive, and because we are complex beings, we may experience both at the same time sorrow and sadness at the reality of our, our sinfulness and, and our continued struggle where we constantly fail. And yet the whole point of the table is to remind us that Christ has paid for that, that his love is greater than your failure. And that's the reason for joy. And so as we come this morning to this table, you can come in sadness or you can come in joy. But either way you come, always remember that grace is always promised. Father, as we come to this table now, we pray that you would meet us here that you would speak to us by your Spirit, that you would remind us of our need, of our debts, but remind us all the more clearly and open us to receive the message that you have paid it in full because of love. Father, for those who are here this morning who come perhaps a little too easily, we pray that you would remind, give the grace of repentance, give the grace to see the iniquity, the what's wrong within us. But to all who come, and particularly for those who don't seem to be able to get past their own failures, and, and those who feel the weight of discouragement and depression, may they taste love. Lord, as we come to this table, as we eat and drink, as we proclaim your death, may it be a reminder to us an anchor that sustains us, not just through this day, but in every day of our lives. 
This we pray in Christ Jesus who loved us so much that he laid his own life down for us. No one taking it from him. But he did it for us. For you. For love. All praise to you, our God, in the church, here and throughout the world. We pray in the name of Christ.